Hello and welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Today we're studying women in the French Revolution. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me on Purdy's Podcast. Dear World Civ Class, I've written this extra letter on the role of women in the French Revolution because standard textbooks don't cover the topic well enough. I'll also be adding an essay question on the end of unit exam, dealing with this material as another option for you. The question will be straightforward. Discuss the roles of women in the French Revolution or something like that. Women have battled for a more prominent role in the area now known as France since before the Romans invaded Gaul. In those ancient times, it has been argued that women played a large part in the chieftain's decisions. In medieval France, Joan of Arc famously saved France from English, English domination and allowed the king of France to come to power. In fact, Joan basically forced the Dauphin, the crown prince of France, to be crowned at the cathedral at Rheims where centuries later, Louis XVI was crowned king. Revolutionary France was thirsty for new military heroes for women, but who would not be so closely tied to the monarchy and to the Catholic Church as Joan of Arc was. And I've got a couple good pictures of Joan of Arc here in the letter. Now, the next section is women in the 18th century in France prior to the revolution. In the 1700s, however, even with all the talk about enlightenment ideas and rights and freedoms flying around, women had few rights. As Jane Abray states, quote, generally speaking, a single woman remained under her father's authority until she married. Marriage transferred her to her, to her husband's rule. Once her husband died, however, a widow gained a bit of independence, especially over the estate, but still had to defer to male relatives. Women from the working class and peasant women, farmers that is, had it even more rough as their wages were super low for their usual work of domestic services, heavy labor, and weaving. Most girls and women had no opportunities for education, and 65% of French women could not write their names. With no schooling and no money, girls faced tough futures because their parents would usually only help their sons financially, thinking this was a better use of money. Women entered into unhappy marriages because they brought no dowry, no bride present of money or goods with them to help build their new home with a new husband, who they were only rarely marrying for love. Women from the nobility and clergy, high-ranking nuns, were allowed to send representatives to the meetings of the Estates General in 1789, which were simulating in class at that old tennis court, but they could not vote themselves. There were only 5,000 nobles, men and women together in Paris, a city of around 600,000, and they rarely interacted with the common folk. Yet the noble women had some political clout because they hosted salon, informal political, and intellectual gatherings in their homes and influenced decision makers there. So parties where they would discuss all the issues of the day. Now here's a note on fashion history. In the 1770s, enlightenment ideas on women's health began to break into public discussion. 
Doctors argued that the clothes women were forced to wear, especially corsets, cut off their breathing too much and were super dangerous during pregnancy. So women's clothes got lighter and looser and easier to wear. And with the new freedom their clothes provided, perhaps taking this idea from Jane Abray, more freedom of speech and ideas followed. Now, one typical noblewoman was finance minister Jacques Necker's daughter, Germaine de Stau. And I've got a picture of her in the letter below. She owned a green leather writing desk, which she always had on her knees, writing in her journal or writing letters all day long. She was very sociable and had 15 people in her bedroom when she delivered a baby and then was up and organizing a salon just three days later. Madame de Stael hoped for a chill, restrained new monarchy, but the revolution raced past her and its radicalism. From 1787 onward, women's rights pamphlets were posted all over Paris and other towns in France, calling for equal status in marriages, more jobs and better pay for women, more education for girls and women, and calls to block men from women's fields, such as sewing and embroidery. Another goal of early feminist groups, though the word didn't come into widespread use until the 1800s in France, feminism, was for midwives to be paid by the state to come to Paris to help with baby deliveries, as there weren't enough midwives in the city. Enlightenment-area thinkers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau mostly did not want greater rights for women, but wanted them to focus on their roles as mothers and wives at home. For example, Rousseau grumbled, there are, no mor there are no good morals for women outside of a withdrawn and domestic life. A woman outside her home loses her greatest radiance and is shorn of her true adornments and shows herself indecently. If she has a husband, what is she out seeking among men? says Rousseau, the great Enlightenment thinker. Yet at least one major voice, the Marquis de Condorcet, made a powerful case for women's rights, echoing the American revolutionaries as he said, women were not allowed to vote, and so they were being made to pay taxation without representation. The major gripe of the Boston Tea Party in 1775 back in Massachusetts, but not many men agreed with the Marquis. Okay, when we're back with Purdy's podcast, we're going to be talking about a seminal event in women's rights and authority and their assertion of their rights in October 1789 in the March on Versailles. And we'll be back with Purdy's podcast. Okay, welcome back to Purdy's podcast. We're discussing the Women's March on Versailles, October 5th and 6th, 1789. As the revolution heated up, it was women, and common women especially, not noble women, who really got things moving. In, 17, in September 1789, three months after the tennis court oath, there was a flower shortage. And we had a flower shortage this year during the pandemic, which was freaky. Uh, and I had to buy a couple five-pounders of King Arthur. There was a flower shortage in 1789 in September, and people began to starve, not having enough bread. On October 1st, a big dinner was held at Versailles, and there were rumors that the nobles were trampling the new tricolor flag. Oh, hell no, said the common hungry women of Paris. At dawn on October 5th, a woman beat a drum in the middle of Paris. Thump, 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 thump. 
And an hour later, 2,000 angry common women were gathered at the Hotel de Ville. Uh, check the map I mailed you of Revolutionary Paris, a key place. They wanted bread and they wanted justice, calling out that, quote, their men were not strong enough to be revenged on their enemies and that they, the women, would do, would do much better. All men were blocked from the Hotel de Ville, except for one National Guardsman, Stanislas Maillard, who had helped take down the Bastille in July. Their numbers got so great, they had to march first to the Tuileries Gardens and then to the Place d'Armes on the Champs-Élysées. Champ the crowd of women brought Maillard along as they marched for almost nine miles in a downpour of chilly autumn rain from Paris to Versailles. Uh, the French Open was postponed from spring to autumn, and in Paris they're worried about a forecast of rain, but the tournament location's roof uh, can cover the courts. But Paris in the autumn can often be chilly, misty, and rainy. So they brought Maillard along as they marched for almost nine miles in that rain to Versailles. Rich women from the third estate were dragged from the side of the street or out from their carriages and drafted into coming along on the march. This surprised people watching the march to see a bunch of rough-looking common women with some dainty ladies alongside them in their fancy dresses. The women on the march, 6,000 in total, were armed to the teeth with pitchforks, broom handles, pikes, swords, and even some muskets. And there's a picture, a picture that you see in, in most textbooks I've included on page four. When the crowd got to the Palace of Versailles, they found the gates locked for the first time in history. King Louis wasn't sure what to do. Number one, fight the National Guard troops who were coming under Lafayette a bit behind the Women's March. Or two, run like the wind and get out of Versailles, which many of his advisors asked him to do. Instead of being decisive, he just kind of hung around and promised grain to the women and also to sometimes sign the new Declaration of Rights of Man and of Citizen, which he hadn't gotten around to yet. Madeleine Glain, a 42-year-old homemaker, testified the next year that she had demanded more bread for the people from King Louis. Marie-Rose Barre, a, la a lace maker, said in her later testimony that the king told her that he and his family were suffering too, and he promised more grain for Parisians. As night came, everything seemed all right, and things were pretty quiet. At dawn of the next day, though, October 6th, 1789, a mob of women and a few men broke into the palace. When the queen's guards tried to stop them, they killed two of them and decapitated them. Dressed in her nightgown, Marie Antoinette barely escaped to the king's apartments. The Marquis de Lafayette, yes, the one from Hamilton, probably saved Marie Antoinette's life by going out on a balcony with her to wave at the crowd and ostentatiously kissing her hand in full view of the raging crowd. And this quieted the crowd for the moment. Yet in the long run, the radicals of the revolution never trusted Lafayette again, thinking that he was too loyal to the royals, especially to the hated Marie Antoinette. The mob of women, not quite sure what to do, marched with Lafayette's National Guardsmen back to Paris, escorting King Louis and Marie Antoinette's carriage, parading the heads of the dead of the dead queen's guards, guards of the queen, I should say. Marie Antoinette's still very much alive here. Parading the heads of the dead guards stuck on pikes alongside bloody loaves of bread. 
so heads and bread. And they brought a bunch of the royal stores of flour with them to bake bread for the hungry people of Paris. The women yelled that they were bringing with them the baker, the baker's wife, and the baker's son, because Louis had promised more bread for them. Pardon the atrocious accent. Fred Da doesn't teach the class. Sadly, it's me. So you get my French accent. Among the women leading the procession was Tirwan de Mericor, a woman, a noblewoman who had come from Belgium to live at Versailles and observe the National Assembly. She caught the eye of all with her bright red riding jacket on the march to Versailles, but later caught a lot of criticism and hatred from the male revolutionaries, especially the Jacobins, who did not want women as activists. And there's a picture over here. The revolution entered into a calmer phase for the rest of 1789 and through much of 1791. Women out in the countryside continued to back the monarchy and were a bit sour on the revolution. They had been driven to radicalism the year before because their children were starving in 1789. With things a little better, they weren't feeling as radical. On September 30th, 1791, King Louis signed the new constitution and finally signed the Declaration of Rights of Man and of Citizen. The new constitution relaxed the laws on marriage, divorce, and inheritance and raised the status of women. Because women still weren't given equal rights across the board, Olympe de Gouget wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Women and of Citizen. And I've included some pictures, a modern euro coin of her below and an image of her with her declaration as well. But the government spies reported that the people did not pay it much attention. It sort of passed without notice. Two years later, the Jacobin leaders of the Reign of Terror had her executed by the guillotine for being associated with the rival Girondist faction. In April 1792, Dutch feminist Etta Palm von Elders spoke before the assembly demanding public education for girls to make women full citizens at age 21, equal rights between men and women in general, and finally, easier divorce laws. Van Elders and her allies claim that the revolution's famous natural rights of man must extend to women. Beyond that, without women, new little revolutionaries could not be born. Women were vital for the future of the state. Yet except for easier divorce laws, None of these ideas were made into law. Now, some revolutionary women wanted to form military units of women soldiers and actually to call them and actually to call them Amazons after the reputed women soldiers of Greek mythology to fight in the revolutionary army. Indeed, there were a good number of French women who actually served in the regular army, including René Chapoy, a famous cavalry um, horse riding soldier. Tirwan de Maricor led this effort, wearing a pair of pistols at her belt when she helped lead the attack on the Tuileries Palace on August 9th, 1792, when King Louis's loyal Swiss guard were bloodily cut down, which I've covered in um, the previous letter on Napoleon and the end of and the end of the revolution. De Maricor, in her turn, was attacked by a bunch of Jacobins in May 1793 and beaten so badly that she suffered brain damage and ended up in a mental institution. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about these women soldiers in the French Revolution. Historians have verified 
um, a group of women soldiers that fought for France in the revolution. And we'll take a look at them when you're back with Purdy's podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming back for the final segment of the podcast on women in the women in the French Revolution. And we're discussing women soldiers in the French Revolution. Historians have verified at least 30 female soldiers who enlisted in the French army during the Revolutionary Wars. They signed up for lots of reasons, but mostly they signed up because, number one, poverty, the army would provide for them. Secondly, the pension the government might provide when they left the army. Third, patriotism. Lots of women wanted to show they could serve the Republic as well as any man could. Fourth, and finally, adventure. For girls and women stuck in boring, dead-end lives, the army promised at least the possibility of travel and excitement. The Jacobins were full of revolutionary ideas and vigor, but they were really retro and backward on women's rights. We've already seen that they executed Olympe de Gouget, author of the Declaration of Rights of Women. It was the Jacobins who, on April 30th, 1793, they expelled all unnecessary women from the French army as they defined unnecessary. This was supposed to result in soldiers' wives, mistresses, and even prostitutes leaving the army's camps. But it was such a broad law that it drew in the handful of women soldiers too. René Chapoy, mentioned above, who joined the army in 1792, after her five older brothers had joined ahead of her, was a brilliant caval cavalry woman, but was expelled from the army by this law when she was exposed and outed as a woman. Her fellow soldiers and her commanding officer requested that she be allowed to rejoin the unit, the unit. And in her application to the government, she made her case powerfully. And Renée Chapoy says, I shall, wherever possible, redouble my courage and efforts. And I shall prove to the Republic that the arm of a woman is worth just as much as a man's. As soon as its blows are directed by honor, the thirst for glory, and the assurance of defeating the mighty. Another good example of a French woman soldier is Rose Alexandrine Barreau. She married her husband in Semalen, a small village in the south of France, on March 5, 1793. Sadly, he had to go serve in the, in the army right away. So Rose threw on some men's clothes and signed up as a grenadier, that's a kind of soldier, in his regiment, adopting a new first name, Liberté. Her enlistment record is in the Archives Nationales in Paris. The only two people in the regiment who knew she was a woman were her brother, who was also a soldier, and her husband. So what happened? Well, no one learned her secret until July 1793 when her husband was shot in a battle against the Spanish. And after she ran out of ammunition herself, she pulled him out of the line and to the doctor. At the time, she was also six months pregnant. Even after her fellow soldiers learned she was a woman, they wanted her to stay as she was such a brave soldier. Yet with the baby on the way, she left the army on September 29, 1793, being celebrated around France as a Republican hero and getting a cash bonus as well. Yet, 1793 was the year where the feminist promise of the early revolution faded, and women gradually lost their newly won rights. Now let's discuss Charlotte Corday and her famous murder of Jean-Paul Marat. Probably the most famous woman of the revolution is the assassin, 
Charlotte Corday. She was a 25-year-old woman from Cannes in Normandy, and even out in the countryside, she was fired up about politics and a big backer of the Girondist faction. When the Girondists lost power to the new Jacobin party and Jean-Paul Marat, and the Jacobins began using the new guillotine to execute Girondists, Corday decided she had to do something. Killing this one man, Marat, one Girondist newspaper argued, would save 200,000 other lives. So Charlotte Corday left home, leaving a note telling her dad that she was sorry for leaving without his permission. And then on July 9th, 1793, she traveled to Paris, where she rented a room and bought a kitchen knife with a five-inch blade. She went to Marat's apartment, slipping in during a bread delivery, and told it's always about bread, right? And told Marat's wife, Simone, that she wanted to rat out a bunch of Marat's enemies from Cannes. Simone didn't want to let her in, but Marat overruled his wife and invited Corday to visit with him. Now here's where it's just weird. And I've got a couple good pictures of Charlotte Corday in peaceful repose and knife in hand. Marat suffered from a kind of horrible skin problem where he had awful itchy sores that only felt better in a warm bath. So he spent lots of time in his tubby, writing letters to people with a writing desk that stretched across the tub. Corday sat on a stool by his bathtub and gave him her report. Hearing about all these enemies, Marat said happily, Good, in a few days I shall have them all guillotined. Corday then sprung up, and she admitted it was a lucky aim, stabbed him in an artery by his collarbone, and it was all over for Marat. Then she sat down and waited to be arrested, while Paris just blew up. The Jacobins turned Marat into a saint of the revolution, a martyr, and they could not believe that, that just one young woman could have taken out the great Marat. On July 17, 1793, she was guillotined after a quick show trial, and an observer said on that day her beautiful face was so calm that one would have said she was a statue. Sadly, men who opposed women's rights used Marie Antoinette on one side of the revolution and Charlotte Corday on the other as examples of women in general, that they could just not be trusted with power, but were all pretty much wicked and untrustworthy. And of course, we discussed Marie Antoinette at some length in our previous letter on the end of the French Revolution and rise of Napoleon. To finalize and to wrap up, we'll, we'll move to Napoleon and women's rights. When Napoleon Bonaparte took command in 1799, all the progress women had made in legal rights vanished. He said about French women, quote, we need the notion of obedience, in Paris especially, where women think they have the right to do as they like. The French government, Napoleon's government, in a decree of November 7th, 1800, made it illegal for women to wear trousers, except during Carnival, like Mardi Gras. The French Revolution had been a brief decade or so of blurred gender roles and exciting new possibilities for women's rights, but Napoleon's regime wanted to put an end to that, even at the level of fashion, trousers. Napoleon's famous Napoleonic Code of 1804 which helped improve and make more clear the laws of Europe, was not kind to women and restricted their rights. Napoleon took the following steps in the code regarding women's rights or lack of rights. First, Napoleon had the law state 
that women were seen as legal minors, like children, their whole lives. Women convicted of adultery could be legally punished, but men convic convicted of adultery were not. Fathers always had superior rights in children's custody cases. State-funded education was only for boys, not girls. And finally, divorce rights were cut way back, but not eliminated, because Napoleon still wanted to divorce Josephine so he could marry an Austrian princess. Well, class, if women lost their hard-won new rights under Napoleon, then the blood and sacrifices of the revolution hardly seem worth it. However, for 200 years to come, the examples of women in France's revolutionary past inspired the battle for equal rights that still continues today. Well, that's it for the short letter on women in the French Revolution. Thank you so much for joining me today. Have a wonderful afternoon. You've been on with Purdy's podcast. Oh! <laughs>